Steve, we are way ahead of the game. It's Wednesday, but we're pre-recording Monday Minute. Yeah, yeah. Fourth of July calls for it. Yeah. Chaos of summer continues. I'm out. You're out. Things are just happening nonstop. So. Oh, wait. It's not 4th of July. You're getting ahead of yourself, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at the calendar. Rob. We'll probably have to pre-record another one, though, for month, yeah. for 4th of July. So. Oh, all right. Yeah. I was just getting ahead of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So being a Wednesday, um, actually, I was just finishing stuff up. We normally send out our emails on Wednesdays. Uh, and I know that there's some podcast listeners who may not get those. I'm like, what the heck are you guys talking about? Uh, and we've mentioned this a little bit here and there, but if you guys want to sign up to become an EXO insider, uh, just go to exomountgear.com forward slash newsletter, or we'll include a link in the show description. Um, but the reason I mentioned that is just to let guys know there's other content outside the podcast in terms of videos and articles and things like that, that we uh, do publish. And so you guys may not be seeing those. And if you want to get them, that's the best way to do it. There's actually a really cool article coming out today from uh, Josh Kirchner. Uh, about archery practice and kind of um, both mindset and like specific strategy on really how to practice well and make the most of it. So it was something really timely to me as I'm shooting the bow. And obviously most guys with archery tags this year, are hopefully shooting the bow right now. So if you want to kind of get some tips and things like that, check that out. Uh, and I'll leave a link to that article uh, in this description as well. But um, Monday minute, man, we just had a whole bunch of questions, a lot to get through both in this episode, as well as the weeks to come. And again, if you guys have any questions to add, keep them coming, just send us an email, to podcast at xmontgear.com. Um, we had some follow-up Steve on the solo elk episode, uh, which you actually weren't on, but, uh, it was myself and Tyler Boschma and Nathan Jones all about solo elk. And one of the things that was mentioned in there is we both covered hunting tactics tactics as well as like all the strategies for what you do when you're successful and solo, um, both in terms of breaking down an elk and packing it out. And then passing, I think it was Nate that mentioned um, using a pulley system. And hmm. I should have asked more follow-up about that uh, in the moment, but didn't. And then listeners definitely are like, we want to hear more about that. Um, and I haven't had a, ch- a chance to reach out to Nate to see what he specifically uses, but I I am aware of a few things that I would point listeners uh, to if they want to learn more about that, um, because obviously th- there's there's multiple areas that comes into play um, while you're breaking down an elk solo. It's often required to tie something, um, you know, tie a leg up, right? Because you don't have a buddy to hold it. And so for something simple like that, you can certainly just get away with paracord and some knot work. But for guys who don't you know, practice knots or aren't too familiar with stuff. One thing I found really helpful is a figure nine carabiner. Um, you can just Google that and they come right up. They make a really small ultralight one and I keep one in my kill kit. Uh, but the figure nine essentially allows you to easily um, tension and lock down cordage without knots. And then it's also a quick release. Um, and I've found that's really helpful for breaking down animals, especially because even if you do knots or slip knots or knots that are easy to untie, obviously you're breaking down an animal. You may have gloves on your hands, may be slippery, bloody, et cetera. Um, and so a figure nine carabiner makes that really easy to hold tension and then release tension on a line. So, um, that's the first thing I would recommend. That's obviously not a pulley though. So we talked about, you know, hanging meat and the advantages, especially while solo that uh, mechanical leverage can give you. And there's a couple things there. 
Um, one is a product I'm aware of, but haven't personally used. I know some guys who have used it, uh, with good results. And this guy's a hunter, really small company and makes a system called pack a pole. And it's literally pack a pole.com again, link in the show description, but he sells basically an ultralight block and tackle setup with pulleys and even lightweight cordage where you can truly get like a two to one or four to one mechanical advantage makes it much easier to hang heavy loads when you're by yourself. Um, so that's the first one. And, uh, it, it could be good to consider. The other one is using just some simple carabiners. There's essentially a technique where you can build that mechanical advantage yourself. It's not going to be the same as a true pulley. Uh, there's actually a really helpful video online from Clay Hayes, who is a guest we've had on the podcast before. And he shows you how to do this setup uh, with more minimal equipment. Again, it's not necessarily a true pulley system, but essentially is building that uh, mechanical advantage. Um, and so I'll leave a link to that in the show description. So in terms of soil elk and follow-ups on the pulley system and other pieces of your kit that may be helpful, those are some things that should help you guys out for sure. Another thing that came up, Steve, from uh, that conversation was we talked super briefly about using a packer um, and having a packer lined out in advance, if that's something you think you may want or need. And we got quite a few questions on that. Uh, and I have limited experience doing that. There was uh, a couple, well, I don't know if it was one or two years where I did go through the process of finding a packer for a trip. And having that packer on call and working all the logistics uh, with that packer, but ended up being here. I didn't fill a tag and didn't need to use them. Um, so yeah, just want to touch base on that. Some, some of the basic questions that came through, and again, this was from multiple listeners. So I know it's a topic that guys want to hear more about, but finding a packer, um, where do you start with that? The first thing I would say is start with honestly, just the guides and outfitters are ready. So, um, obviously you're not necessarily doing a fully guided hunt, maybe not even doing a drop camp hunt, but those same services and guides and outfitters providing that service may be willing to be hired as just a packer. If you're successful, um, that's the first place I would check because they have the capabilities, obviously, but also because they're familiar with the country. So if you're headed into a specific unit or area, I'd be looking obviously very specifically at the guides who are licensed to operate in that unit um, and see if they can help you out. There's potential to go outside of hunting guides and just even look at ranches. Um, you know, they may not have nothing to do with hunting, but they may have horses. They may do pack in trips for fishing or just for recreation, and they may be willing to help you. Uh, and then if you don't get anything there. I'd reach out to local resources, including fish and game to see if they had recommendations. Um, so finding a packer, that's kind of how I would, uh, break that down. Have you, I know you've worked like with horses a little bit, Steve, I think that was through a friend. Have you ever, you guys ever hired a packer like that? Uh, yeah. Same boat as you. I've a couple times really like early on when I first started backpacking, um, I reached out to an outfitter in an area and they were more than willing to do it. You know, at the time it was, um, I think the money was just like, Oh my gosh, like it's gonna have to be really freaking far in there for me to like justify, mm -hmm. you know, it might only been like four or 500 bucks. I don't remember what, it, what the rate was, but at the time I thought it was ungodly. Um, and, 
Yeah. So I I, I never used one from that instance. Yeah. One of my good buddies, Mike, that, that, you know, well, um, went and hunted Kodiak with us. He, um, has horses, you know, we've obviously killed elk together and, uh, and slapped the meat on the horses and packed them out. And then he's done some kind of uh, word of mouth packing for guys, uh, here and there, but, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's really my experience with it. Um, Mm -hmm. it's never, um, never used it. So some of the other questions that came up, uh, one being pricing, um, it said, uh, what is a ballpark price for this kind of service? I think the range you just mentioned, Steve, of like four to $500 is probably, um, a good average. Obviously it's going to depend on who you find. Um, and then potentially even what that pack trip looks like. So the packer may tell you, yeah, it's going to be three to $500 or four to $600. Right. So it may depend on how far they have to go. Um, if they have to do any sort of like trail clearing or anything like that to get into your location. Um, and so the price can vary, but I would say that that that's kind of the ballpark I would probably count on for elk. Um, but it's obviously going to depend on the packer. Um, obviously touched on trail clearing in there. Keep in mind, especially if you guys are new that you may kill an elk in a spot that they can't get horses to. And so it isn't that you're going to put an elk on the ground and have horses come right up to it and then take care of everything. You may have to pack that elk and shuttle it to a point at which the horses can then get to. Right. So, um, just keep that in mind. It's, uh, there's still going to be some work on your end. Um, other questions that came up, you know, honestly, these are great questions to bring up, not because Steve and I, you can answer them, but because they're great questions to ask if you are looking to uh, put this type of service together, such as how long does it usually take for the packer to reach you? Again, ton of variables here. It's going to depend on the distance, the weather, the conditions, etc. One thing to keep in mind that some guys may not initially think of we talked about how you may be hiring a guide or an outfitter just for their packing services. And if that's the case, keep in mind that that guide or outfitter, you aren't their highest priority, right? So if they have a paying client, whether it's a guided hunter or even a drop camp, um, you and your packing service essentially falls like in third or fourth place in terms of priority. Um, so you, you very well, you very well may contact them and say, Hey, I have an elk on the ground. And they may say, okay, I can be there in two days or three days. Um, they may not be able to drop everything immediately and make their way to you. So that is a consideration to keep in mind. Clearly it's still up to you as a hunter to make sure that you are prepared to take care of the meat, uh, in the field for those few days. So, and even things like if you're traveling out of state, your trip is on a super tight timeline. Keep all those things in mind. Um, it isn't necessarily going to happen right away or even overnight. It could be two to three days for them to reach you. But those are the good questions to ask the packer on what uh, you can expect there. Um, another interesting question that came up was, do you have to get pre-approval from the packer on your hunting location? I wouldn't say pre-approval, but I would communicate as much as possible on where you're expecting to hunt and what their capabilities are to get into that country. Um, so again, these are great questions for the packer that you are then uh, coordinating with. Um, so there's a, there's, there can be a lot to this. Honestly, I would say don't be over in, intimidated by it. 
start with just making some phone calls, finding some people and asking these questions to them about pricing and timing and availability, uh, location capabilities and all that. But it is, it is a good thing to uh, consider and to do some planning on, especially if you're solo and you think you're going to um, get into a position where you're not capable uh, because of distance or time to get an elk out by yourself. The other thing I would say is even if you don't plan on hiring a packer, every time I go on a trip, um, I just always bring cash with me, like several hundred dollars. Um, if you find me in the woods, don't jump me and take my lunch money. <laughs> but there's literally been times where it's like, I don't have plans to hire a packer, but if I find the right guy with horses who like happens to be there and it's like, he wants to help me for a couple hundred bucks or a few hundred bucks, like maybe I'm going to find myself in a position where I want to take advantage of that. Um, and obviously these guys, you're in the back country, you probably don't have cell service, whatnot. They're not going to take Venmo. Um, so just always have cash with you, even if you're not planning on hiring a packer. I just think it's a good idea to have that, uh, available. I'd ha- like I've heard that story at least a dozen times, right? Like yeah. they, you're just hunting an area and you run into some cool old dude on his horse out there. And maybe he's like just hanging out in camp or some guys hunt or whatever. And yeah, it's like, they're most of those guys, um, have those horses and frankly want to use them. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's probably not, you don't got to pry and push too hard to get them to help you pack something out. So yeah, having 400 bucks and you know, your pack is maybe worth it. Uh, just in case you run into that. Um, the other thing I didn't hit on that's obviously critical to this whole situation is just contact contact in the field to the packer, right? So you're lining this up in advance, in advance of the hunt and understanding with that packer, how can you communicate when you're in the field? So if you have an in-reach, um, can you text them? What number should you text them on? If you're using something like an in-reach or even your personal phone, like maybe you hike out to cell service and you're going to then call them or text them, I would do all that before the hunt. I would send them that message. Like, say you are using an in-reach, you've already talked to them, you've already set things up. I would be sending them an inReach message two weeks before the hunt and then a couple of days before the hunt of like, hey, this is Mark from my inReach. As we talked about, you know, I may want your packing services, whatever, whatever. Um, so obviously the communication portion of this is incredibly critical. And again, that's something you need to um, work with them on to make sure that you're communicating the way that's going to work for them. And then also essentially test that out in advance. So yeah, there can be a lot to it, but it can be a lifesaver on a backcountry hunt. And hopefully some of those questions will, will help you guys get started. See the, let's see, let's dive into another one. This is a kind of a gear one rifle one made me think of you. Cause you got a bunch of rifle hunts this year. This guy says I've been a bow hunter, but just recently picked up a rifle for some upcoming hunts. Do you have any advice on using a rifle sling or should I just strap the rifle to my XO pack? I almost purchased a rifle sling recently, but then I thought, won't the rifle be on my pack? Maybe I should just pick up a rifle carrier for the pack itself. Do you have any advice for a rookie rifle hunter in Colorado? Uh, so Steve, you, again, mostly bow hunting background, more and more in the past years, rifle hunting. Uh, what are your thoughts, experiences on slings? Um, I'm not, I don't like them. Well, I don't use one. So I guess that's that there's that, um, the, I don't like them. I mean, there's this like bunch of a biggest complaint forever, right. Was that 
the rifle sling won't stay on your shoulder because you got a shoulder harness on in the pack in the way and just wants to slide off constantly. Uh, and then that's why you kind of work on a rifle carrier that can mount to the pack and get, you know, get the gun on and off relatively quickly. Um, the, so for me, the, the, the guns either strapped to the pack and it's strapped to the pack in either or situations where I don't think I'm going to kill an animal, right? Like just kind of hiking in the dark or just like traveling across country from A to B, like in areas that is not going to expect to see animals. Maybe the terrain is very technical. It's like, okay, I want both hands free. So strap the rifle there. Um, and then, uh, and then if I'm hunting, it's in my hand, right? Um, I want super, super quick access to it. I don't want to have to mess with the sling or mess with getting it off the pack. Uh, and for me, it's not a big deal. Uh, I know a lot of people can't stand carrying their gun. Um, I guess just, you know, 18 plus years of bow hunting, your bow is always in your hand and it's, it's like, um, yeah, you just deal with it. It's part of like, you need to have your weapon super accessible when you're hunting. Um, the only thing on the sling side that I think is a pro is, um, gosh, I think I can go back to, um, podcast we did with Ryan Kleckner, like talking about how using the sling as a tool to, to aim, right. Um, and get a more solid rest. And that's something I have no experience with. And I'd, I'd imagine there's some guys that think you're absolutely crazy not to have a sling, uh, to get a solid rest. So, um, mm -hmm. I can't speak to that, but as far as everything else, um, a hunting rifle shouldn't be 12 pounds, right? It should be like nine pounds or under, in which case it's not that big of a deal just to carry in your hand when you need it. Yeah. I'm pretty much the same way. Um, I kind of started using a sling, um, especially on backcountry hunts where you're covering more ground simply because it's like, it's what you do, right? Like I just kind of expected that that's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. uh, but the more I used the rifle mounted to the pack and then realized how quick it was to then get that off of the pack. Uh, I started using a sling less and less. And then, as you just said, even in the instances where, um, I am holding the rifle in my hand because it's, you know, a huntable situation. I just found that it's honestly better to have it in the hand than even on the shoulder. Um, and even with a decent sling that stays in place and all that, like if you're just hunting in rough country, it's, it's honestly easier to have it in the hand versus just dealing with it in any sort of movement off of the shoulder. Um, and as you said, like, I guess I feel the same way. Like my bow almost weighs as much as my rifle by the time you had a sight and a full quiver and all that. And so it just feels very similar really. Right. Um, so yeah, there's, if you're getting a sling, like for pack use, um, and you're wearing a pack system, I think something that's number one thin and number two has some sort of grip to it is going to be beneficial. Um, I wouldn't want like a big leather sling or a very bulky padded sling. Keep in mind, if you're already wearing a pack, your shoulder harness is padded. So then putting a padded sling on top of that is just overkill and very bulky. Um, there's a very simple, I think it's by Butler Creek. And I think they even call it the mountain sling. Um, it's probably 20 bucks um, and it works well. I'll leave a link to that in the show description. So um, if you're going to use a sling, I'd recommend something really simple like that. But I would, I would definitely kind of, if you're just using a sling by default, cause you think you need a sling, I would get some more experience and see if that's truly the case for you. As you said, Steve, I think they, they have more use as a shooting tool than a carrying tool. 
And there's benefits to using a sling to help you stabilize yourself from multiple shooting positions, like whether that's prone, sitting, kneeling, et cetera. But again, if you're not going to put in the practice to take advantage of that, I wouldn't then count on a sling being a shooting tool in the field. It's something you have to develop the skill for and practice with. So um, there's multiple sides to that for sure. I would just question the assumption that you need one by default um, and see if it works for you. Yeah, I was uh, talking along. I'm the same way with a wrist sling on a bow, right? Like forever, it's like, oh, you just have to have one and put one on. And then eventually at some point, I mean, 10 plus years ago, I just stopped using it. Like, wait, why was I having a wrist sling on my bow? You don't freaking need it. Um, so yeah, definitely just challenge the assumption that it has to be there and try it without and see if you like it. I still use a wrist sling, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some people never learn. Right. I just, my grip is so good and torque free that it's just a bow fly out of my hand. <laughs> um, all right, cool. Uh, let's see. So this is a question that has come up over and over again from multiple people. And I've had it on the list of like, yeah, it's a great question, but I'm just not sure how to answer it. Um, but it's come up enough that I'm like, all right, let's just throw it out there. And I'm throwing out there you with like no notice, Steve, to see what your first thoughts are. The short version of the question is how far away can an elk wind you? So he goes on to say, if you run into a situation where you are on the wrong side of the wind and need to make a stock on some elk, how far above or below the elk do you need to go so that they do not wind you and you can come in with the wind in your favor? Tough question to answer, I think. But what are your thoughts, Steve? I don't. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I, 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 there's too many variables there. Exactly. Man. Yeah, I definitely. And this sounds quasi crazy, but the last few years, I've re, I've stopped packing wind checker. Um, and I know it sounds crazy because it's like you'll talk to some people like Corey Jacobson. They're checking the wind every ten seconds. What I've found is the wind is you know in the mountains it's just if you are you could drive yourself crazy with wind checker right and that literally as you you're side hilling a mountain you go from shadow to sunlight to shadow to sunlight it's going down it's going up it's going down it's going up um and so really i just hunt some roundabout way to answer the question but i just hunt on like okay there is a prevailing wind it's coming from the northwest um the thermals should be doing this at this time. And I just use those kind of two factors together to hunt. And there's definitely times now where the wind is like at my back at that moment going in the direction of the elk. But I just like, I know that in between me and the elk is a super sunny open slope and the, the thermals are going to be kicking it up there. Right. Um, so I've stopped, stopped paying attention to the, micro details of the wind and really just the macro is what I'm using to hunt again. What are the, what time of day is it? So what should the thermals be doing? Where's the wind direction coming from? Then also understanding that say the wind's coming from the Northwest and we're on an East facing slope that the wind's going to be like turbulent over there, right? The wind's hitting the top of the Ridge and it's going to be like rolling down the mountain and doing all sorts of weird crap. Um, so that's my roundabout answer of how far can they wind you? I have no clue because there's, you know, a, I also think like a really strong wind 
you know, has a chance to kind of like dissipate your scent more, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like something that's like really strong. So maybe just blowing by the elk so fast that they don't get a good enough whiff of it. Um, I do. I remember um, years ago, I was talking to this old Alaskan guide. This, you know, I was probably like 20 and he was, we were talking about bear hunting and bears noses. And he was, he told me the story of there's this, this basin they used to hunt and they think they were, I can't remember what they were hunting, maybe moose or something like that, but they would, that the, the horse trail would lead right into the bottom of it. And he said, um, I think it was like three miles, four miles or something that the basin, you could see all the way to the back of the basin. And it was kind of a bald open saddle in the back of it. And he'd take clients in there. And if the wind was at their back going up the basin, they would just like, at one point they would stop and pull out the binos and they would just see bears, like just rolling up and over and out of there that at like two, three plus miles, they were catching their scent and getting out of the country. And uh, you know, I, I don't know how much truth there is to that story, but I also don't doubt it. Right. Um, so I, I think they can under the right circumstances, wind you from a long ways away. It's just, you know, if depends on the area that you're hunting, sometimes there's, so there's a lot of hikers and stuff like that, that, you know, there's gotta be like a proximity alert for an elk that, uh, or any animal that's like, okay, that I can smell that, but that's like a very faint smell. It's far away. I'm not in danger. And there's gotta be something at some point where like, oh, that's very strong. I'm getting out of here. Right. They're close. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Um, yeah, again, I just, I stopped. You you could never actually freaking hunt in the mountains. If you just, if you constantly, like you're trying to approach an animal and you had to, you were constantly waiting for the perfect wind because that scenario just doesn't exist. Uh, at least not in the country that I hunt where it's just, the wind's just all over the place. And I just stopped paying attention to every little giant, like subtle change in the breeze or like readjust my plans on how I'm approaching something. Yeah. I think you covered it well and kind of echoed my thoughts. Um, there's certainly a difference, you know, between a prevailing wind and thermals also. So when we talk about being winded, it's like, well, what does that, like, what does that look like? What do you, what yeah. type of wind are you talking about? Um, obviously cover and terrain is going to matter. Um, yeah, there's just so many variables to it and it's, it's dependent on the range, uh, your distance between yourself and the target, the elk deer, what have you. And then not only understanding, okay, the wind is moving from point A to point B, but it's not really that simple. It's not A to B. It's what's happening in between. Um, terrain features can kick wind, as you said, cover or openness, especially with thermals can affect that. And so, as I think you mentioned, like the wind could be going towards the game, um, but there definitely could be thermals like that are going to essentially pick up your wind uh, in between you and the game and kind of carry it a different direction. So yeah. it's just, I mean, it, it becomes something that you have to look at in the field. I mean, it, it, we just can't answer the question and even the distance, right? Like so many variables there, like cover terrain. Is it thermals? Is it wind? Like there's just no easy, like it's not as simple as saying, don't worry about the wind when you're 200 plus yards out, but then worry about the wind when you're closer than that. Like that, that's not true. Um, yeah. just can't be that simplified. So yeah. how far away is like a super tough question to answer. I definitely said too, with rifle hunting, um, really not worried about the micro wind patterns. Right. And it's just like, cause everything's, you know, you're for the most part, 200 plus yards out from the animal again, just like, okay, prevailing winds going this way. Just make sure the wind's not 
I'm not hunting with the wind at my back. And then, all mm-hmm. right, it's morning or afternoon. I mean, really, I'm always just trying to side hill into animals. Like I don't want to yeah. be below them or above them. I just want to side hill into them. So that's um, just kind of use that to your advantage. And I'm trying to think the the only exception, which I haven't done in a few years is like early season, you know, chasing a mule deer that bedded down. Like I am absolutely going to wait until, you know, noon to three o'clock until the thermals are kicking fast up the hill uh, and approach from above. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. That's the only time I would, that scenario, I'm definitely not going to be like, Oh, the wind's finicky. I'm going to go try this. That's like, no, I'm going to sit here, wait for four hours, wait for the winds to be perfect. And then, you know, do that final stock. And that's what the bow, obviously we need to get within 50 yards. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things, uh, just episodes and moments come to mind is one, this pretty recent episode with Nick Sabo, we talked a fair amount about wind and mule deer. Um, so that'd be a good one to maybe go check out if you guys haven't looked at that episode yet. Um, and then as you mentioned, Steve, with rifle hunting, like I don't want guys to over oversimplify what you said, um, or misunderstand like how they heard it. It, it still can matter. Right. So if you go back right. and listen to like the recap of, uh, your and I's rifle elk hunt from this past fall, as you'll hear in that story, like we did have to play the wind when we were yes. making our approach. Cause we found ourselves under elk, uh, meaning lower than the min elevation. It was at that weird, like mid morning transition where thermals are dropping, you know, 40 yards away, but you could be staying in a spot where they're rising. Um, and so we, we kind of caught ourselves where we had to uh, move through an open sunny pocket where thermals were rising, uh, which was obviously not good because we were below the min elevation and essentially make our way to a little Creek draw where the thermals were going to be falling and use that to work our way up. And then, as you said, side hill into him, like more often than not side hilling in is going to give you the, the best, uh, advantage. Um, so yeah, it still matters. Like if you guys want to hear more on that, those are just kind of two things that came to mind. If you want to go listen deeper. All right. Um, here's a super random one, Steve just came up, but it was like timely, at least to me. Like I wrote in and asked if we had any experience with intermittent fasting. Um, then he goes on to say, if so, what are your thoughts on applying it to backcountry hunting? He goes on to say this year, my brother and I will be hunting elk in Idaho. The area in Idaho we are going to looks a little more demanding than where we have hunted elk in the past in Nevada and Arizona. I know there are people that believe in intermittent fasting. In addition to our normal training, we are looking for any aid, any edge we can get um, for performance on this hunt. Um, I do, I, I did follow intermittent fasting a handful of years ago for quite some time and actually I've been doing it the last couple months. And so that was like kind of time that this came up. I don't think it's going to necessarily give you massive advantages for hunting though. Uh, I don't think there's any magic about it. I don't know even if like, say now I'm intermittent fasting and I continue to do so through, uh, the summer and then leading up to hunting season. That doesn't mean I'm going to follow intermittent fasting on a hunt. I think it can help, um, some aspects of your training. So when like currently I'm doing intermittent fasting and I do train in the morning. So essentially I'm training in a fasted state. Um, and that can have some benefits in terms of like teaching your body essentially to use to get non-scientific, like onboard resources, meaning I'm not fast or I'm not, uh, fueling off of calories I just consumed. Um, but I'm fueling 
based off of uh, the calories that are already on board. So it can help you be a little bit more efficient. Uh, you'll get, you'll hear guys get off deep in the weeds about like being fat adapted and things like that. Again, there's some truth to that. Um, I don't think it's for everyone. Um, honestly, I think there's different benefits to intermittent fasting potentially for guys that again, like his whole question in terms of intermittent fasting and tying that to in the field performance, I think there can be some gains there, but I don't think it's going to do anything magical. Like to me and Kyle camp talks about this all the time on nutrition stuff, like master the basics first. So yeah, total number of calories, composition of calories, things like that. Those matter first. And then your timing, the timing of those calories is really a secondary issue. Um, and not even secondary. It's like further, further, further down the list. So like anything else, there's science out there that says good and bad about intermittent fasting. I think it can have some benefits. I'm honestly doing it because I like the discipline of it almost like, honestly, I think more clearly like in the morning and things like that. Um, I'm not doing it to perform on the mountain. I'll put it that way. Um, if you guys happen to be interested in intermittent fasting, there's a massive ton of resources and reading you can do on that. One thing I'll just say, if you're, if you are doing it, you're interested in doing it and you want to track it, I use an app called zero. I think it's just called the zero app. And it's just a little tracker to show you your hours and like break down over weeks and months. And it's super cool, but, um, give it a shot. If you want to give it a shot, I like it. Uh, I think for certain reasons, but again, I'm not doing that for performance on the mountain. Uh, I think there's some gains that could be had there but only if you've already dialed in the really, really important stuff like that's coming before intermittent fasting or meal timing. So Steve, I think you would probably hate it because you talk about low blood sugar all the time. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that would work for me. Um, yeah, man. I think just, you can't, you cannot replicate just getting and like slapping a pack training wise, slapping a pack on and getting in hilly country, um, getting off trail and just like practice what you do. Right. Um, if you can, I understand there's guys that, that, you know, live in very flat country. They don't have mountains around, but I think the vast majority of guys have access to some Hills. And, uh, that's just my advice, man. Like, yeah, everyone performs better on week three and four of elk season after they've been out there for a few weeks, why not start that early and actually train how you're going to hunt. So get out there, get a load of pack on, and that's going to do way more for you than, you know, a lot of other things you could geek out on. Yeah. And if it like solid point, if you're intermittent fasting and it helps you shed some weight, that's great. But right. The, I think the performance benefit comes from the fact that you're now much leaner and not carrying around extra pounds, not the fact that you did it via intermittent fasting. So right. Uh, yeah, if, if it helps yeah. you like, yeah, lose 10 pounds, you need to lose then great. But there's also different ways you can lose 10 pounds for sure. Um, yeah, cool. Well, that's a wrap on this one. Uh, as always, guys, once again, thanks for tuning in. If you have a question for us, um, send that to podcast at exomountaingear.com via email. Uh, we'll be back on Wednesday with a full-length episode. Again, a ton of stuff coming this summer that we are super excited about. So I hope you are uh, going to keep following in. Appreciate that. Um, if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app to receive those future episodes automatically. We'll talk to you soon.